When the hostilities started on June 22, 1941, it was pretty unexpected for Stalin. The Ukrainian territories were not ready for an evacuation. An evacuation plan was made and implemented during active battles. Museum workers did their best to hide or prepare things for an evacuation. But it was done in a rush, when the Red Army was retreating and approaching Kyiv, for example. At the time, there were fewer bridges across Dnipro River than there are now. Evacuation trains were bombarded, some items were lost in a fire, and others were lying around in boxes near railway tracks. So today, if you ask nearly every museum worker, you will find out that their lists of lost exhibits are very extensive. You've just heard Olha Kovalevska, a specialist in Ivan Mazepa's biography. My name is Anna Polinchuk, and I'm the producer and showrunner of this podcast. This is the second episode of the Why Do They Steal podcast. We will talk about the failed evacuation of Ukrainian cultural valuables during the Second World War. We will also tell you about Ivan Mazepa, the headman and leader of the Ukrainian Kazakh state at the end of the 17th and the start of the 18th centuries. We will touch upon his heritage and a unique bell with his portrait. And Anton Drobovich, head of the Ukrainian Institute of National Remembrance, will explain why Mazepa is one of the most famous Ukrainians in history, and yet there is so little we know about him. Like most of our outstanding historical personalities, Ukrainians don't know Ivan Mazepa well. We know that he was a hetman, some know that he was a great philanthropist, even fewer people know that he was a highly educated man for his time, but most of us, of course, know that he is depicted on a banknote and that he had something to do with Peter I, and that's pretty much it. He was part of Europe's high society at the time. He was an equal interlocutor for kings and princes. He did a lot for Ukraine, building its system and setting up administration processes as if it was an independent territory, although it wasn't. During Mazepa's rule, people felt the difference between us, Ukrainians, Cossacks, and them, Russians, Russian soldiers. This division was fundamental. Great erudition, power, independence, and our own vision of our political subjectivity are the things that still irritate Russians. This talented ruler had power when Ukraine depended on the Russian Empire. Russian rulers controlled and assigned hetmans. Ivan Mazepa dreamed of making Ukraine more independent of Russia. When the Russo-Swedish War began in 1700, he made a secret alliance with Sweden, which was winning the war. But when Mazepa and the Cossacks openly sided with the Swedes in 1709, the new allies of Ukraine were defeated. Furious, the Russian Tsar, Peter I, burned down and looted Ukrainian cities. He banished and cursed Mazepa, whom Russians still hate and believe to be a traitor. Hetman Mazepa is at the top of the national traitors and betrayers list. At the same time, the European point of view is different. They believe him to be a rather heroic and tragic figure. 
Hugo, Lord Byron, Franz Liszt, Delacroix, and Jericold created books, musics, and paintings about Mazeppa. And this is what, for example, the leading propagandist of Russian television, Salavyov, says about him. He was honored because he had betrayed Peter I and chose to be on Sweden's side during the Northern War. Russians cannot get over Mazeppa for more than 300 years. It's the anti-spiritual ties persona for them. Their state is ideologically based on the constant humiliation of Mazeppa. Why? Because of the alliance with Karl XII and the attempt to remove the dependency on Peter I. It was basically, he showed the direction and did it in the beginning of the 18th century. And this is why we have an independent Ukraine now. Olha Kovalevska has told us about the political heritage of Mazepa, but he also left material heritage everyone can see in Ukraine, Mazepa's churches and other historical buildings he constructed, for example. The heart of the Hetman's legacy is the Chernihiv region, which shares borders with Belarus in the north of Ukraine. There used to be Mazepa's capital, the city of Baturin. But by Peter I's order, Russians seized and looted the town and its churches. There are a few bells from Mazepa's time that still exist today. Some of them are in Kyiv. One is on the territory of the Kyiv Pechersk Lavra, and the other still hangs on the second level of St. Sophia Cathedral's bell tower. It is called Mazepa Bell. But the most valuable Mazepa's bell is kept 1,000 kilometers away from Ukraine. It's called pigeon, because of the bird depicted on it. There are no such bells anymore in Ukraine. Its uniqueness lies in being richly ornamented, and these ornaments completely meet the demands of the Baroque style. There are very few similar pieces in general. Furthermore, it is hard to decorate cannons and bells like this because there are a lot of tiny ornamental elements such as flowers. In this case, we have not only a Baroque ornament, but also a sign that states that this bell was cast during the happy rule of Ivan Mazepa. On the other side of the bell, a beautiful Mazepa emblem is depicted, a family emblem. And the main thing is a full-body portrait of Mazepa on the body of the bell, probably one of his earliest portraits. It is unique because he is depicted on the bell, not on a canvas or paper, not even on a thin metal on which a person can engrave the portrait. It is a casted portrait. Mazepa's bell was cast in 1699 in Hluchiv. It was a casting center at the time. It was fabricated for Hetman Ivan Mazepa for the Resurrection Church in Baturin. And the bell itself was made by the famous master Karpo Balashevich. There are only a few artworks by Karpo Balashevich left in the world. Maxim Blakitny, the scientist at the Chernihiv Historical Museum and researcher on the evacuation of Ukrainian cultural heritage during the Second World War, tells us about the pigeon bell cast in the north of Ukraine. Olha Kavalevska provides more details. 
There's Baturin as a fortress, but there's also Baturin in a broader sense. The fortress plus country residents of the hetman and the Cossack foreman. And the resurrection church was situated in Honcharivka, the country residence of hetman Mazepa. This church remained unharmed in the fire of 1708, when Menshikov burned Baturin. So Honcharivka didn't burn as the Baturin fortress did. There is a version that after the famous events of 1708, someone from Hetman Mazepa's circle secretly delivered the bell from Baturin to Domnitsky Monastery. It's near Berezna, a town near Chernigiv. And this bell stayed in the Domnitsky Monastery until 1927. Even historians in the early 20th century weren't sure where the Resurrection Church bell could have possibly disappeared. Only with time did they realize that it was transferred to the bell tower of the Domnitsky Monastery. In 1927, the Ukrainian researcher and ethnographer Boris Polipenko found this bell. He measured it entirely and conducted research on it. In 1929, in two years, he made pretty good quality black and white photos of the bell. Thanks to that, we know how it looked, what size it was, and which ornaments were used to decorated. Efforts by the Ukrainian ethnographer Boris Filipenka might have saved the bell, as Olha Kovalevska has just told us. In fact, in the 20s, the USSR fought actively against churches and everything that had to do with them. At the time, all confiscated church items were cast into machines for plants. Boris Filipenka not only researched the pigeon bell, but also organized its transportation to the Chernihiv State Museum and did everything for it to become a museum exhibit, not a religious item. That's why it wasn't destroyed. Mazepa's bell used to be in the entrance hall of our Chernigiv State Museum. It was available for city visitors and locals at that time. So it stayed in the museum till the Soviet-German war. The museum was damaged when Germans were bombing Chernihiv. Many exhibits were destroyed then. It was a miracle that some exhibits were saved and are still in the museum's collection. But the bell's destiny remained a mystery. Because on the one hand, it was 700 kilograms that you had to put somewhere in order to carry it. You couldn't just put it in a pocket and go. On the other hand, it's been missing since 1941, and nobody knows where it is. The evacuation of exhibits from Ukrainian museums to the east of Russia was very chaotic during the Second World War. It was so disorganized that even historians could not tell what Ukrainian cultural artifacts had gone missing because of the bombs or marauding. If we speak about the Chernihiv State Museum, its exhibits were loaded into three wagons. The plan was to transport it to the Russian town of Ufa, but it was hard to track what exhibits made it to the town. After the war, the exhibits began to return to Chernihiv. The process was as sloppy as the evacuation. Some items didn't return, and there were cases of returning other museums' exhibits. And the pigeon bell 
People looked for it all around the Chernihiv region and couldn't find it. Nobody thought to look for it outside of Ukraine. We could have still been talking about losing the bell if in 2015 something unexpected hadn't happened. Arkady Tarasov, senior lecturer at that time, PhD and researcher from Moscow, was also researching bells, doing his job. And he happened to go up to the bell tower of St. Nicholas Monastery in Orenburg. He noticed an old bell there. According to the evacuation plan, the pigeon bell had to be moved to the city of Ufa, but it was transferred to another city, Orenburg. The distance between Ufa and Orenburg is 400 kilometers, and it's 1,800 kilometers away from Chernihiv. It's unknown how the bell ended up there. The logistics were poorly organized. Two wagons went to Ufa, and the third one was Mazepa's bell, and other valuables went to Chikalov, nowadays Orenburg. Employees of the Chikalov Museum received our museum's items in their operational management, meaning they had to register and check everything they received. But there were few museum employees. They even had to involve technical staff and cleaning personnel. 39 objects were lost due to this careless attitude towards the museum's valuables. The bell which was evacuated and not returned is on the list. We can assume it was done on purpose because Russian museum workers and historians didn't want to return valuable Ukrainian cultural and historical objects. This is how it was rediscovered. The thing is, it doesn't work. It cannot be used due to the crack that appeared with time. So it's there, it hangs there, but it cannot be used. That's the first thing. Returning it would be an important mission for us, because on the one hand, it's a unique bell that tells us a lot about our country's history during the Hetmanate. On the other hand, it has one of the most ancient Mazepa pictures made when he was alive which is also essential. The other thing is that people who were telling the story about the bell's rediscovery stressed, thank God it belongs to the Russian Orthodox Church now, and Ukrainians cannot claim it. Nevertheless, Mazepa's heritage, besides the bell, consists of numerous churches he built or rebuilt during his lifetime. But after he had sided with Sweden king Karl XII, he had quite a specific relationship with the Russian church. Anton Drabovich will tell us about it. Many of the churches he built and decorated as a donor belong to the Russian church now, where he's on the anathema list. People usually understand it as cursed, but anathema means he was banished from the church community. He was dismissed by order of Peter I. It's ironic because people go to the church built by Mazepa, he's on its walls, his name is on the list of the church's donators, and people pray for him. And at the same time, when it's time to remember the curse, Mazepa is also mentioned as someone under the anathema. Without a doubt, Mazepa's bell is part of the cultural heritage of Ukraine. But what does the law say? Nothing illegal happened during the USSR, it seems. This is the voice of one of the senior Ukrainian lawyers in the cultural heritage and intellectual property field. 
Andriy Karnaukov. Items were exposed in other republics or, for example, evacuated from the occupied territories during the Second World War, or when regions were under the threat of occupation. It was done as a means of preservation, but they didn't return these pieces, and in the contemporary context we see that Russia tried to eliminate particular national, Ukrainian in this case, identity now and then. And Ukraine is a bone in the threat for Russia now. Our team found no public claims to return the bell while working on this project. So, this unique artifact continues to hang broken in distant Orenburg. The pigeon bell story is not only about Russia's unwillingness to return someone else's valuables, but also about chaos during a war. There's another case with another object of Ukrainian heritage connected to Mazepa. Olha Kovalevska explains. Mazepa's cannon also survived until our days, and it also ended up outside Ukraine. The most exciting thing is that it's kept under the walls of the Kremlin arsenal. It's inside the very heart of the Russian capital, Moscow. This cannon is also very interesting. First of all, it was made by the same master who created the pigeon bell, Karpo Balashevich. And this lion cannon ended up in Russia as a military trial. But it's hard to tell when it happened, during the destruction of Baturin, the Battle of Poltava, or at some other point. The Kremlin used to be the primary residence of Soviet dictators during the USSR, and it continues to have this function in the Russian Federation. Some researchers claim that the cannon stayed in the Kremlin loaded for centuries and it was unloaded only in 1979. But when it comes to Mazepa's heritage, so hated by Russians, there's even more. There are many headmen's manners in Russia. They're even supposed to be architectural monuments and are protected by law. A pretty strange decision about the heritage of the man they consider a traitor, isn't it? Have you heard about Hitler's belongings stored in the Russian main military cathedral? To take away someone else's property and show that it's yours now. Their imperial way of self-exaltation indicates that these people or entities do not exist anymore, while their Russian empire is still there, owning the other people's property, and that's what will happen to everyone. The Russian approach Anton Drabovich described is used not only with valuable things, but also contracts. For example, the March Articles. The most famous Ukrainian hetman and country ruler Bogdan Khmelnytsky contract with the Russian Tsar. The official version says that the original agreement was lost, but its copies allowed Russians to manipulate and impose the narrative about Bogdan Khmelnytsky making Ukraine depended on Russia. Olha Kovalevska speaks about it. One can manipulate these things as long as we don't have them. There is a famous story about mice that ate an authentic contract between Bogdan Khmelnytsky and Oleksiy Mikhailovich. Something else might have happened, it might be gone, or it might not. The same goes for many other things. If they are gone, if we cannot see them, it seems like they never existed. This gives Russians the ability to claim that 
How did Ukraine appear? Who created it? Lenin did, while creating the Soviet Union. This is the narrative that Putin tells the Russians. To date, the State Historical Museum in Moscow stores the mattresses of several seals that belong to our hetmans, starting with Bohdan Khmelnytsky and ending, it seems to me, with Mazepa. These are the same stamps that legally certified the legitimacy of a document, right? And there you can quite clearly read that this is the seal of the Zaporizhia army. So if this is the stamp of the Zaporizhia army, then it did exist. Olha Kovalevska has told us about numerous attributes of the Ukrainian state that Russia appropriated. These are artifacts of Kievan Rus from the 9th to the 12th centuries. Cossack crests, unique symbols of Ukrainian knight's power, and flags of the Ukrainian People's Republic of 1970. Why do they need all these documental proofs of someone else's history? Maybe to make sure that they don't belong to Ukraine. How can you claim that Ukrainians do not have statehood if the whole world can see specific historical artifacts of this statehood? And if these relics are in Russian museums, they seem to be less Ukrainian. This is the habit of stealing to appropriate someone else's gains, culture and history. Andriy Karnouhov also speaks this. You cannot just return these attributes of independence and national identity to your enemy fighting for independence, having an opposite view on how a state should exist, how people should be there. This is why I think we shouldn't expect Russians to return these attributes in the near future. This was the second episode of the Why Do They Steal podcast about how the artifacts related to Mazepa simultaneously aroused hatred and the desire to appropriate them in Russia. We've talked about the bell that people wanted to save so badly that it was lost for half a century, about the cannon which was placed in the heart of the Russian Empire, but they forgot to discharge it and about taking other people's belongings to seem more important even if everyone understands that it belongs to someone else. Our third episode will continue raising this issue. We will discuss the unique history of the mosaics from St. Michael's Cathedral, which impressed everyone in Kyiv, the capital of Ukraine, for centuries, until the Soviet Union destroyed them. Watch Why Do They Steal on the Ukrainska Pravda YouTube channel and listen to it on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify and other platforms. Subscribe and share it. The material was prepared with the support of the International Renaissance Foundation. Production 435 Films Showrunners Korni Hryciuk and Anna Palinchuk Screenwriters Korni Hryciuk and Yuri Marchenko Producer and narrator Anna Palinchuk Sound Supervisor Vasily Avtushenko Assistant Irina Terletska Project Coordinator Olena Kirichek English Translation Anastasia Perun English Voiceover Alina Zivakova Rob Feldman Katarina Gordienko English Voiceover Recording Pavlo Melnik and Ala Shmatok <laughs>